I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And for once, President Trump is acting entirely in line with U.S. policy in the Middle East. That is not a good thing. (laughs) By shocking the American military command itself, suddenly pulling U.S. troops from Syria, the Turkish military under dictator Erdogan immediately proceeded to engage in a not at all hidden uh, assault on uh, against the Kurds. Uh, many, uh, there were war crimes apparently committed. Once again, the Kurdish people were abandoned to a bloody fate. Since the First World War, Western support for the Kurdish cause has time and again dissolved like a mirage, precisely when they needed it most. Depressingly, nobody, least of all the Kurds, should be surprised by this latest betrayal in a long line of betrayals. The Kurds have long been treated as mere pawns in other people's struggles, whether the Cold War or more recent Middle Eastern conflicts. Most recently, uh, they, especially the highly organized and motivated Kurdish warrior women, were key to defeating ISIS. Who are these Kurds? Why does this fate keep repeating itself? How is it that they are stuck between unfriendly nations? In his new article titled, Why There Is No Kurdish Nation, our guest John Broich answers these and other questions about this little-known but highly significant stateless nation. The piece was published in Conversation.com, an academic journal, and then republished at the Chicago Tribune, Yahoo News, and elsewhere. John Broich is an associate professor at Case Western Reserve University. Broich writes and teaches on environmental history, the history of race and empire, Royal Navy history, and World War II history. Thanks so much for being with us, John Broich. My pleasure, Bert. Thank you. One could logically begin this discussion in either 1919 or 2019. I choose 2019 because the topic is a bit of a mystery to most Americans, and the status of Kurdish people sprung up in the news pretty much when President Trump unilaterally announced the withdrawal of our troops from Syria. Suddenly and without warning, the Kurds were put in grave danger. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that their very existence was suddenly under great threat. Their very existence. The Kurds were at the vanguard of the U.S.-led war on the Islamic State, you may remember. When they were abandoned, they became as sitting ducks for the Kurdish, Turkish military, I should say, that has for so long sought to eradicate them, completely eradicate the Kurdish people. When Trump pulled Americans out of the region, the Turkish government took it as a green light to attack the Kurds. And they are doing just that. Yerevan Said, former White House correspondent for Kurdish TV, wrote in October, 
fairly long quote, but it's, it, it really explains it. Quote, the Turkish military assault has already displaced over 130,000 Kurds, Arabs, Yazidis, and Christians and killed at least 38 civilians and wounded hundreds more. And uh, this Kurdish military is now aligned with al-Qaeda and al-Nusra, of all people. For Kurds such as myself, again, this is uh, Yerevan Said uh, talking, watching the footage of Kurdish children being killed, wounded, and displaced as a result of Trump giving Erdogan a free hand is not just heart-wrenching and deeply disappointing, it's also shocking. My fellow Kurds and I are shocked at the indifference of the Trump administration toward its most reliable partner in the fight against ISIS. And we are shocked at its indifference in giving up on the United States' most successful story in the world's most anti-American neighborhood, one Washington has devoted so many resources to protecting and nurturing over the last three years. I, I myself experienced the same terrifying scenes that we are witnessing in Syria of carnage and destruction, of people fleeing violence on foot to reach safety in nearby mountains when my own family was attacked in Iraq. Indeed, this experience of violent persecution is common among Kurds in Syria, Iraq, Turkey, and Iran, all places where Kurds have been forcibly divided and left stateless since European powers after World War I drew the borders for modern Middle East nations. But in the case of the Iraqi Kurds, in stark contrast to what's happening to our Syrian brethren, the U.S. over the last three decades helped us escape the bloodshed. Well, all that has changed since... Trump gave the order to withdraw American troops. There were a great many women who led the Kurdish forces against the Islamic State. It seems the Turkish forces targeted them mercilessly when Trump gave them the green light. For example, it was uh, Havrim Kalaf who had been a leader. When the green light was given, she was found by Turkish military, dragged from her car, and executed on the side of the road. Today we'll look at how did we get here? How does 1919 relate so devastatingly to 2019? If you asked Americans to guess how many Kurds there are, where they are, you'd get a lot of blank faces. Yet the Kurds are not an insignificant number. So, John, how many are there and where are they? And what countries are they presently located? Since they don't have one of their own. Indeed. Yeah, well, part of the problem is that no one cares to count the Kurds uh, because they're so often considered um, non-members of their host nations. But we think there are about 35 million or more, and they're in the countries of um, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, uh, a few in Armenia, and Iran. Uh, and then in the diaspora around the world, there are many millions more. What is their historical background? Well, they're a, they're a mountain-dwelling uh, people who've been in that region since time immemorial. And we define them um, as speaking a range of uh, Kurdish dialects and simply identifying with each other, um, while for the past, uh, up until 1919, as you said, for about 600 years, they were subjects of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, I learned about that just in recent years. And, uh, well, your article included a map of the Mideast region from 100 years ago, just after the First World War, which, frankly, doesn't do us a lot of good on the radio. 
<laughs> so let's do before and after. Before the war, there was an Ottoman Empire. What was its geographic territory? Describe right. its it was, it, edges. Very good. It was vast. Um, the Ottoman Empire was a vast multicultural empire extending from uh, modern-day Algeria, uh, going across North Africa, uh, down to Mecca and Medina in present-day Saudi Arabia, up through the Levant uh, to the edge of um, Iran, or Persia, as it was called, and all the way up the Balkan Peninsula, uh, through that is through central Anatolia, Asia Minor, uh, all the way up the Balkan Peninsula to just about the edge of what is today Austria. Um, wow. Across all those lands, it encompassed all kinds of ethnic groups and religions, but it was centered on Istanbul. Huge, huge territory. Huge. Uh, they became aligned with the Germans in the First World War, who did not win the war. They weren't exactly defeated, but they didn't win. The victors divided the vast territory that we just described of the Ottoman Empire. Now, this map I'm looking at, uh, the French and British interests in the region, there are these just uh, seemingly arbitrary lines, the direct French control, French influence, British influence. <laughs> I wonder if you could describe uh, how, how this was uh, divided up and why. Exactly. Well, um, that's the, the central heartland of the Ottoman Empire was largely divided between a north uh, and northwest French sphere and a south and southeast British sphere. We're, we're leaving aside North Africa, which is also divided between French Empire and uh, British right, right, right. and Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for our purposes, we're talking about um, the heartland in Iraq and the Levant. Um, and um, well, I guess that brings up um, <laughs> Sykes and Picot. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, Can't so, I <laughs> cannot get away from them in this conversation. Mark Sykes and Francois Georges Picot were diplomats um, of Britain and France, respectively, who secretly worked on dividing uh, the Middle East or Southwest Asia between France and Britain in 1916, well before the end of the war. Meanwhile, I should mention the British were making promises to Arab leaders who were helping the Allies fight the Ottoman Turks. Um, they were promising them uh, some kind of sovereignty in the Arab heartland that we're talking about. Uh, but it's fair to say the Allies betrayed them, or at least very much under-delivered. Um, so the Sykes-Picot line describes this split uh, in the Middle East between that northwestern French sphere and that southeastern British sphere, because the French had uh, long-lasting historical connections to what's today Lebanon and Syria. And they wanted uh, the capital of the Middle East in Damascus. The British wanted Palestine uh, because it was right above the critical Suez Canal. They wanted the prestige of being sort of protectors of Jerusalem. Mm. And while they were still getting most of their oil from USA, actually from right here in Cleveland where I'm sitting, from Standard Oil, um, they, the British suspected that there was a lot of oil under Kirkuk. Mm. 
mm-hmm. uh, and Mosul in uh, Mesopotamia, what became Iraq. And um, guess what? That dividing line between French and British spheres cut straight through uh, the informal Kurdistan. Oh, my goodness. Oil. Boy, it's amazing, you know, how it used to be that we'd say, oh, no, 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 we're not fighting for oil. We're fighting for freedom and democracy. (laughs) Well, lately, Trump has been more upfront about that, saying, yeah, it's about oil. It's about the oil fields. And I don't think the Kurds particularly had any interest in the oil. I don't know. Maybe they did, but I I wonder about that. And, you know, the the Sykes-Picot line... Uh, see, you know, a fair amount of number of people have heard of them. I remember just fairly recently uh, a video put out by ISIS, the uh, Islamic State, proudly bulldozing through the actual line in the sand. Their anger was still seething. This was nearly 100 years. Well, it was probably about 100 years after the Sykes-Picot line was drawn. And uh, how, the factors that went into the placement of the lines, uh, and I, I guess it just went straight through the Kurdish territory. They had no say in it, correct? Exactly. It just happened to be that that was um, the heart of that uh, sort of long west-east mountainous corridor of Kurdistan, and they had they had no st- no say in it. Wow. Oh. So. <laughs> Well, people know somewhat about, you know, the Middle East, that there's a lot of different forms of Islam. There's Sunnis and Shia. People have heard of that. How do the Kurds fit into uh, the Islamic uh, world? Great question. They're they're majority Sunni, um, but some are Shiite, some are Christian, some are Zoroastrian, so it's it's uh, religion doesn't define Kurds as much as uh, sort of a shared uh, what we'd call ethnic background. Uh huh. Uh huh. And they do they do share that. And there's about how many nowadays? Just still in that region, there's about thirty five million. So it's a it's a you know That's it would lot. constitute a pretty populous state. And so here we are in twenty nineteen, almost twenty twenty. Where would a Kurdistan logically be on the map, do you think, if it weren't for the objections of uh, the various countries uh, occupying it? Yeah, well, that's, that's the problem, is because it's, uh, it's chopped up as if by cookie cutters between Turkey, Syria, Iraq, um, southern Armenia, and Iran. And uh, none of those countries want to um, have those cookies cut out of them. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, but uh, it, it's amazing how. And where were Sykes and Pico when they drew these maps? Oh, they were in Paris. <laughs> they were in Paris, or they were they were in London. Um, you know, you. It's. I think it's helpful to use your historical imagination to to imagine um, the sorts to where uh, white tie entails. Um, and discuss the carving up of the world over caviar and champagne, um, because in, 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 I'm I'm actually not trying to do my uh, populist Midwestern uh, shtick there. I'm saying you have to. That's true. Um, That's how it was. Yeah, it, it, it's how it was, and you have to imagine that their understanding of class mm. um, told them all all their self messages told them that they were the right people to determine other people's fates. 
I'm stifling a laugh. <laughs> but it's true. They were the right... I mean, the British and the French, too, thought they were the right people to decide other people's fate. And, of course, the First World War was uh, many, many, many reasons why it started. But the Germans wanted that, too. Darn it. Yeah, they just wanted a piece of that. But uh, exactly. they, they, it wasn't allowed to be. For those of you have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is uh, John Broick, and uh, he's a uh, associate professor at Case Western Reserve University. We're talking about why there is no Kurdish nation. People may not have heard of the Kurdish people before, but they've heard of them now. And the Ottoman Empire. My understanding, and I, I, I'm not sure about this at all, is that the Ottoman Empire was a fairly loose grouping of distinct tribes nominally headed by sultans, who lived pretty well, who did not exercise real control over the populations. Is that accurate? And that's that's the territory we're talking about here. Right. Um, I think in some areas um, that is an accurate description, and in some areas control is much more direct. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it was a lot like the British Empire, and I suppose many empires, in which the emperor uh, controls some areas quite directly, and other areas are only through a, a sort of delicate balance of carrot and stick in front of the local power. So in in distant uh, Algeria or Egypt, control might be more called influence, uh, whereas in Asia Minor, in um, the Levant, Levantine areas of Syria and Palestine, uh, there might be very more direct control through a, a, a governor sent out by Istanbul, and and orders are sent and received and enacted much more directly. Uh-huh. So there's areas of influence. Back then there were mandates, the British mandate, because, oh, these people of a darker hue, they can't govern themselves after all. Right. That's Precisely. <laughs> yes, that, that's... That is part of the um, cultural and racial supremacist um, convention of the British and, and French Empire, and, and we 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 say that that is influenced by the idea of social Darwinism, oh, which yes. is not an idea from Darwin. No, no, That's but an idea by sort of Darwin popular popularizers who said, "Well, we can apply um, Darwin's survival of the." fittest mm-hmm. principle to nations. And if we have an empire, what does it prove? It pr- proves that we are the fittest. No. And if we're the fittest, we are the right people to determine other groups' destinies. Now, to me, it's extremely audacious, considering British cuisine, how they thought they could rule the world. And that was some boring <laughs> stuff. The French, I could understand. <laughs> well, I-, I wonder if they're, if they're still a lot of sense of tribal belonging today. I, and if, if it impacts the politics of the region, what are your thoughts about you know, tribalism in the area? Do people, I mean, Iraq didn't exist before this. What about the sense of, of tribe? And I wonder if the Kurdish people are, are part of that. Uh, absolutely. Iraq didn't exist. And, and, and now we're aware that it's made of many ethnic identities and historical identities. Same with Syria. So you, you absolutely see that ethnic and historical shared identities today lead to strife between, let's say, 100 groups living within the borders of those, let's say, seven or so Middle East or Southwest Asian countries. Um, on the other hand, then again, look at Brexit. 
and other movements to devolve away from big encompassing nations or blocks um, in Europe or or, or uh, the Americas, really. Yeah, well, I, I mean, <laughs> there have been books written about uh, the current United States of America being different, well, 11 specific different nations, but that's another story. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you say that before the war, before the First World War, the Great War, many atlases actually did show a place called Kurdistan. Was there ever such an actual political entity? No, uh, except that there were periodical kings of this or that section of the Kurdish heartland um, over the centuries. But there sure wasn't in terms of what we think of as a nation state. Uh That's curious that the atlases showed them. Uh, boy, I wish I had saved a, a globe that I had as a kid of uh, of Africa being divided up between Germans, French, British, uh, Belgian. Uh, the, the Western nations thought they were the top of the food chain. They certainly uh, applied their loose interpretation of social Darwinism. Now, during the first, the aftermath of the First World War, many struggling nations really looked to President Woodrow Wilson with hope because of his 14-point plan, especially the promise of self-determination. Now, my impression is that through the long and uh, smoky Versailles process is that the promise of self-determination only applied to the victors and not the, uh, the vanquished. I wonder what the people of the former Ottoman Empire had hoped for. Any ideas about that with regard to President Wilson's promise of self-determination? Yes, in fact, um, you know, Wilson actually did hope for a Kurdistan. Um, really? Hmm. And, and we, we, we know that there were many movements among ethnic groups to have their own nation, and they, they did try to influence those smoke-filled uh, conference rooms um, because nationalism, yes. nationalist movements were a very common consequence of imperialism. People resist, and they unite around an identity other than their imperial overlords, whether they're Ottoman or British or French. Um, Even before the war, you had a Greek independence movement that was successful. Uh, You had an Egyptian national movement that, um, after Versailles, was pretty successful against the British in around 1920. You had a Palestinian national movement against the Ottomans and then the British, you had an Armenian national movement against the Ottomans, and then Turkey. Uh, you had an Assyrian, yes. uh, that is an Nestorian Christian movement in what is today Iraq against the British and the Iraqis, um, and of course the, a Kurdish movement. So, after the demise of the Ottoman Empire, some people involved with redefining the world at, at Versailles asked, should there be many little nations with borders around Christian Arabs, Muslim Arabs, Armenians, Assyrians, Kurds? So it sounds like it was sort of done. Who? I, I used to work in the legislature, and if, if an interest group didn't have a lobbyist in place uh, when it came to being taxed, Oh, they'd get hit. And I wonder if something similar to that happened with the Kurds. I mean, how did certain nations just get left out of of the, uh, you know, getting new little nations? Yeah, well, good question. And and these groups did try to lobby 
um, at Versailles uh-huh. and subsequent conferences uh, between uh, 1919 and 1920. Um, they, they did not have a great rate of success. Mm. In Europe, the victors tended to draw pretty tight lines around people they conceived of as races. They, they said, there, there's such a thing as a Hungarian, we'll make a Hungary. Um, there's such a thing as an Austrian, we'll make, a, we'll make an Austria. They tended not to do that in the Middle East uh, because of that, that Sykes-Picot division trumped it, if you'll allow the word. Uh, Le- Lebanon, was, Lebanon was a bit of a nod to those um, race or ethnic ideas in that it was roughly half Christian Arab. And there were those who mooted dividing up um, what would become that big country of Iraq among smaller ethnic groups, but to no avail. And I, I, I get the sense that Iraq, I don't, I mean, I don't know, but the sense that, that the people in what's called Iraq now don't necessarily feel Iraqi, that they have, you know, there's some Kurdish people, various different uh, tribes within that country that was kind of splashed down on them, laid down on them. Um, so what what did the, uh, the, I mean, the British did pretty well. They were awfully good at having an empire for sure. And uh, what did the French get in the Middle East? They were really interested in, in Syria, correct? Yeah, they, they got Syria. They got Lebanon and the valuable um, city of Beirut. Um, but Syria and Lebanon caused them no end of headaches. Yeah. Um, when the, when the many groups of different groups of Arabs, um, uh, Druze, uh, which is another Abrahamic religion, um, and other ethnicities were, were none too pleased with being denied their sovereignty, and they wanted their own nations as well. Right. That's, that's another group that people don't think of, the Druze. I mean, they're, they're sort of left to wander uh, and and I guess be nomads. I don't know if that's who they are by choice, or but because they just don't have a particular nation of their own. And maybe they do, they weren't seen as a a race. I mean that that's a curious point. As as your article says, the guiding principle for redrawing the maps was at least in most cases the reigning concept of race nationalism. That that's an I hadn't th- heard of race nationalism before. And who the heck decides? What's a race? <laughs> I mean, that's that's the million dollar question, <laughs> and the the answer is the uh, gentleman in the um, uh, white ties and tail <laughs> uh, in Paris decide who's a race um, and uh, what race deserves um, sovereignty. Deserves. I see. That seems fair. I'm sure there's an, an objective way to measure who deserves. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my goodness. Uh, nothing like real history here. Now, what, what ever became of Mesopotamia? I believe all listeners have, have heard of what the British decided it would be. Tell us about Gertrude Bell and her influence. What was the British interest in that new country, the former Mesopotamia? Exactly. Uh, she's an exceptional figure. Um, so Mesopotamia, as we said, became Iraq. Yes. And um, that was in no small part because of this um, wonderful figure, Gertrude Bell, who 
shattered her time's assumptions about the proper role of uh, a woman. She came from a wealthy British family, which meant a terrific education. She had a progressive father. And uh, um, uh, so she got the great education. She had the family connections. But then with that came um, those aristocratic assumptions that she was the right kind of person to determine the fates of others. She studied history um, at Oxford and was a great scholar. She had uh, uh, relatives who were in the diplomatic corps uh, in the Middle East, and she went to travel to visit them, travel around the Middle East, studied Arabic and Persian, um, and remained there in Southwest Asia. So in World War I, the British, British intelligence needed um, expertise, and it, uh, if she was a woman, they were in such great need that it didn't matter. Um, and that evolved into a role in advising the British in how to shape uh, Mesopotamia and its government after the war. Interesting. And, of course, there was T.E. Lawrence. I'm not, did, he, he was sort of, I think he became kind of a thorn in the British side what, what, and, and was sympathetic with the Arab nationalism. Did, I wonder if, in your research at all, his name ever came up with regard to uh, Kurdistan. Um, Kurt, he, he, he was much more focused on, um, Arab nationalism, as you said, because as I hinted earlier, uh, in our talk, the British had sort of over-promised and under-delivered on Arab sovereignty after the war in exchange for being allies against the Ottomans. (laughs) So he was, so for him, the Kurds were a peripheral concern. Um, uh, Gertrude Bell thought about them a lot. Uh, but she wanted them included in a greater Mesopotamia or a, a big Iraq. Uh, the British overpromised. That boy, that sounds uh, familiar these days to letting down the Kurds once again. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about who are the Kurds? Why is there no Kurdish nation? Our guest, John Broich, wrote an article about that published in Conversation.com, the Chicago Tribune, Yahoo News, and elsewhere. We're talking about who the heck the Kurds are and how they got left out and still don't have a country. Now, the British, who, you know, it, it amazes me how they thought they, they were justified in ruling the world, uh, but they did. Uh, the British jewel in the crown, of course, was India. It was all important. Unrestrained access to India was perhaps the highest priority in British military policy. So with regard to access to India and a route to India, did, did they, how did they see the Kurds? Did they feel they needed to have control over them, that any Kurdistan had to be run by the eminently wiser British advisors? And why? Now you're, right, you're right to think about India. Um, part of the key to understanding anything about why our world looks the way it does is to understand British interests in maintaining order and transportation routes for the sake of keeping India. So yes, Iraq was part of that because Iraq was an overland backup uh, uh, transportation corridor to the Suez Canal passage to India. So Iraq had to be stable and it had to be maintained in a British British sphere um, 
it it had a sort of semi-independence from 1932, as long as it played ball with the British, but it had to be maintained in a British sphere. So the British actually valued having, and this is part of Gertrude Bell's thinking too, having a large population of Kurds in the country as an ethnic block that could be used, that could be played against the majority Shiite Arabs uh, and or the minority uh, but ruling Sunni Arabs based around Baghdad. So is it, uh, having a Kurdish population there locked within those borders uh, was a useful tool for a game of divide and conquer, which the British played all over the world. Wonderful. Boy, the more I learn about the British influence on world history, what can I tell you? The less I come. Dude. Oh, my goodness. In, in recent decades, more recent than, you know, the end of the First World War, there's been, which really never ended, but anyway, there's been great antipathy between the Turks and the Kurds. Real strength of antipathy. The Turkish government has called the Kurds terrorists. There is no one military unit taking in all the Kurds. Is there? I mean, no, no, absolutely not. And in different, in, you know, as I, as I said, they're, they're uh, chopped up as if by a cookie cutter in all those different countries. So their resistances uh, have to be centered in all of those different countries as well. So in Turkey, the big group resisting the Turks for a couple of generations now has been the PKK, the yes. Kurdish Workers' Party. Yes. Um, uh, the term Kurdish or Kurdistan is actually forbidden officially in Turkey. Oh my. Hmm. Uh, uh, but they're not, the, the PKK is, is not entire. I mean, every, every nationalist group, at least at some point, has some divisions within. The PKK isn't, uh, doesn't, the Kurds don't all speak with one voice and they're not all behind the PKK, correct? Exactly. That, that, that's exactly right. And it's important to note that, that the PKK doesn't speak for every Kurd in Turkey. And the PKK is, a, is an armed movement right. and, right. and um, some of their, their actions are very um, bloody yes. uh, and, and, and not to be celebrated. So it's important to note that uh, they don't speak for every Kurd in Turkey. But the Kurds don't have, I mean, all right, the PKK is an organized uh, uh, group that, uh, uh, you know, fighting for, uh, in their fashion, for a Kurdistan. But what other uh, polities are there? Is there any other uh, uh, way that the, the Kurds can contribute? Is there a kind of, you know, loose confederation of Kurds, except that they feel... I'm a Kurd, and that's it. You know, that's. I, I think that's the problem of being divided between nations and uh, nation-state borders. Is it sort of precludes that sort of unity they would require uh, to to uh, to to carve out their own nation? I think that's part of the heart of the the current problem that seems irresolvable. Hmm. But how? It, it can't stay irresolvable forever. Do they, I mean, what about, I know we're, we're moving ahead a hundred years here, but uh, the, what, what's the position of the, of the, I mean, and I know that in, in Turkey, um, the Erdogan, when there was a, an attempted coup, which 
unfortunately, in my opinion, failed in 2016, that uh, the Kurds were attacked very much uh, as, as being behind it. What about the, the Syrians? Are they, what, what's their attitude towards uh, the Kurds in Kurdistan? The, the Syrians have the, well, that's a good question now because of the, the civil war. Um, yes. And they've obviously uh, lost control of big swaths of their territory, but they know more wanted um, a Kurdistan carved out of Syria than, than the Turks did. Right. They want to control it all. But the, the Kurds, are, they're not just going to disappear. I mean, I don't know how many people have been killed when, when Trump gave the Turks uh, and Erdogan the green light to just go after the Kurds. And they were some of our best, you know, I know I said this earlier, but they they fought ISIS better than anybody. And they, they were there on the ground, the women warriors, just astoundingly good. And I'm sure they assumed which is, I guess, to deny a lot of history of them being uh, put out to dry, uh, that the U.S. might help them since they're helping the U.S. so much. I, I, I wonder what their reaction has been. I'm, I'm sure it's like absolute shock. And, you know, I don't know how well armed they are. But uh, in, in the wake of the Great War, the First World War, many maps were, of course, redrawn without any participation by the people mostly uh, defect, directly affected Austria-Hungary ceased to exist, even though, as you say, there was uh, a, a racial nation a, 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 of Hungary, of Hungarians, somehow, well, but Hungary continued to exist, and now, of course, they have a very nationalist, very right-wing leader. But the months of wrangling over the Versailles Treaty focused on a lot of these new lines. You write, the allies in the League of Nations never created Kurdistan. And we talked about this a little bit before, but tell us about the circumstances, the atmosphere about what you can describe as a series of conferences and a succession of European palaces. Prime Minister David Lloyd George, George Clemenceau of France, and Woodrow Wilson, and dozens of other leaders. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is what I said earlier, that I actually think our historical imagination can serve us well um, in this situation, whereas we, we imagine um, the Clemenceau's, um, the Lloyd Georges, and, and so on, um, meeting behind closed doors, um, being perfectly self-serving, uh, for example, in the Sykes-Picot right. uh, secret agreement. Uh, during the day and determining the fates of people they didn't know um, and feeling perfectly qualified to do so. And then after a few hours of work, retiring to put on um, white tie and tail and and to go to a ball and to um, dance the night away and, and drink champagne and eat eat caviar. Yes, um, I think if we, if you if you carry that picture in, and and by the way, there's evidence for all of this. So this isn't a caricature. Right. This is actually what they they did. And if you carry that image in your mind, I think it will uh, help you to appreciate what they did. And what I wonder what the what the people of well the Kurdish people because they're not people of Kurdistan. The Kurdish people, how do they survive these days? I mean. 
Do they just, you know, sort of blend into the countries that currently host them and do whatever jobs they can do? There's no real Kurdish economy, is there? No, and so so they have to um, make the lives that they can yeah. in in the borders of other nations. Mm-hmm. Um, in in nations that really don't appreciate them because they're they're not with the the program of identifying with with their nation they don't um in iran they don't identify as persian in turkey they don't uh, identify as as turkish um so so they have to uh, carve out what existence they can in places that are often not very welcoming Hmm. Boy, that that seems exceedingly difficult. There have been, uh, you know, people who have been nomads wandering without a country for a long time. Uh, but uh, I, I, there was, as I understand it, almost a small Kurdistan after the Versailles uh, uh, treaty process. Tell us about that and what became of that. Yeah. Um, so after Britain and France got their Sykes-Picot division formalized uh, through the League of Nations, which they they could essentially dictate terms to. Um, They did try to act on their race-nation thinking by carving out a little Kurdistan from what remained outside of their spoils. Uh, And that was largely in what is today Turkey. And so that uh, little state got written up in something called the the Treaty of Sev in 1920. But the Turks of the former Ottoman Empire, uh, or the Young Turks movement, also wanted their own race nation of Turkey. Mm -hmm. And so they they took up arms against dividing Asia Minor. And so they they, um, resisted militarily the creation of that little Kurdistan. Boy, the, the Turks have quite a record. And as part of the uh, the Great War, there were the Armenians, the massacre. I would think the word genocide is indeed appropriate. The Turks still deny that they committed genocide. Why? Why are they so aggressive toward the Kurds and the Armenians? I mean, they just wiped out. I mean, just wholesale slaughter of the Ar- Armenians in 1915. Uh, they they wanted they didn't want Anatolia, uh, uh, Asia Minor, chopped up uh, into little pieces for the sake of anybody else. Everybody else would have to become Turks or face the consequences. Talk more about that, if you would, please. Exactly, exactly. Well, so um, part of the history of nationalism, wherever we're talking about in the world, shows that when when people try to make a new ethno state or race state, they either uh, have invented sort of romantic histories showing how everyone in a given place descends from some mythological ancestor, yeah. or they yeah, or they tell themselves stories of their common heritage, or they do things like uh, Otto von Bismarck did in the later 19th century, called Germanization, when he made people uh, who spoke Dutch or Polish only speak German in a new German nation-state, and he banned non-German flags and so on. Hmm. Of course, the most extreme form of forced ethno-nationalism is massacre, uh, uh, ethnic cleansing, which you just described. Well, the Armenians 
and the Kurds in eastern Anatolia were forced either to adopt that common ancestry myth and language, etc., um, or face wholesale violence. Hmm. And Turkey, uh, that government is in power now. And uh, there was that old movie, oh gosh, back around 1980 or so, uh, uh, Midnight Express. It did not exactly give a favorable impression of the government of Turkey. And here we have uh, uh, Erdogan was just recently meeting with his good buddy, Donald Trump. Uh, it, it It's fascinating to me. I mean, have they always been sort of, well, always, for, for the last hundred years or so, I don't know how dictatorial and how aggressive the Turks generally have been. I, frankly, I'm not having a favorable impression of them from what I've read so far. Yeah, well, you know, um, they're subject to the same ethno-nationalist forces that so many countries have been for the past two or three hundred years. Um, there was a time before the ethno-nation um, there will be a time after the ethno-nation. Uh -huh. But the logic of race nationalism uh, means you do things to the others who uh, get included within your borders. So then, when the green light was given by President Trump to go out and, uh, you know, just uh, massacre the Kurds, uh, that's just uh, part of a, a proud rather macho uh, ethno-nationalism, I guess, that uh, the Turks and, and others uh, do as well. Now, President Trump has, has said, it, and he's always curious because you never know what the heck he's going to say or what, you know, of course he always goes back on his word, always. But he said the Kurds could be allowed to remain near oil fields in far eastern Syria. What's that about? What do you make about that? Well, I, uh, it's going to sound like I'm being flippant, but I'm not. Um, the, the best we can tell from a reliable reporting uh, suggests that people around the president are using the story that uh, the Kurds can remain to protect the oil fields as a way to keep some U.S. forces in northeastern Syria and, and uh, practically have a protective enclave for our Kurdish allied fighters with them. So it, it's, and, and again, it sounds like a bit of a joke. I don't mean it to, right. but, but my understanding from the reporting is that's a story that people are telling the president as a means of keeping some troops around that oil and by keeping those troops in those northeastern oil fields, providing some um, basic protection for uh, the remnant of the Kurds there. Ah, so once again, they are being used. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about why there is no Kurdish nation, since we've heard about the Kurds only recently. Our guest is John Broich, and uh, he's uh, written about this uh, highly significant but little-known stateless nation in a piece that was published in Conversation.com uh, and republished in the Chicago Tribune. He's associate professor at Case Western Reserve University. We're talking about uh, the Kurds. And uh, so to, to set them up, I mean, obviously, very obviously, very clearly, the U.S. and others are interested in oil. I mean, oil has been a reason for a lot of wars 
I don't think it was not so much there in the First World War, but ever since. Uh, and uh, so is it accurate to say that the Kurds are sort of being set up like, oh, we in, we have to protect the Kurds somewhat because, after all, they're protecting the oil fields. Why why would they protect the oil fields? I mean, what's their motivation? I, I can't imagine what it must be like to be, uh, you know, the Kurds who who gave so much to defeat ISIS and, and put themselves on the line and, and fought so valiantly and were most effective. Why are they going to believe anybody is on their side? I, I just, I can't imagine. Any thoughts on that, John? Indeed. And and just to make clear, the, the matter of oil goes all the way back to the end of World War One, because there uh, the British suspected there were oil fields under Kirkuk and Mosul, and they were proven right. So uh, one of the reasons they were useful to a person like Gertrude Bell after World War One is they provided um, a ready-made sort of pacifying uh, force above the oil in Kirkuk and Mosul. Uh, uh-huh. So it goes all the way back there. And then in the when it comes to uh, the matter of northeastern Syrian oil today, uh, really, uh, from my point of view, I don't see why... Um, the Kurds would feel uh, beholden to do any protecting for the sake of the U.S. Um, so I, I do think it's because of this fictitious um, story uh, that mm-hmm. uh, people around him are, are offering the president that they will do this, uh, which is really, uh, truly an excuse for keeping uh, U.S. forces there who can um, stand between um, the Kurds and the Turks. It's all about oil. Well, what... The the Kurds are not, well, I don't know. I mean, there's there's Arabs in the area. There's Persians in the area. What, what is there some kind of uh, a look or national sort of costume kind of thing? How would people recognize uh, Kurds? And and they're they're are they Arab? They're not Persian, right? I mean, where do they fit in? Or don't they? no, they're 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 neither. They're neither. Um, I, I think in a deep history they'd be close, more closely related to Persians, um, but they, but they, but to, to be clear, they don't identify as uh, Persian, uh, and and so they um, they have to fit into whatever country they find themselves uh, within, um, uh, in terms of uh, dress and and employment and so on. But they're very uh, fiercely. Uh, committed to uh, to uh, future sovereignty. So um, whether wherever they find themselves, from Turkey to uh, to Iran, uh, they identify as Kurdish. Boy, and if people want sovereignty, generally they're going to get it. They try. I mean, the you know the, the French occupied all of Indochina for a long time, and there was a nationalist movement. People did not want to feel, you know, just a, uh, less than their occupiers, so they fought for Vietnam, and eventually they won, even though we're greatly overpowered, of course, and they have their nation today. Now, you write, uh, now is then, back around 1919, at the end of the First World War, when it all took place, it seems the world powers support Kurds' self-determination only until it's no longer expedient. That's the end of your quote. They're not going to disappear. As you write, they have never, ever stopped resisting. 
What do you see for their future? Is there any way people of the world can help create pressure for an independent Kurdistan? What are, are they in touch with, you know, uh, uh, political entities uh, in, in Europe or in the United States? What, what can people do? It's a good question. And they, they most certainly um, self-advocate. Um, they've been doing this a long time. And um, they're, they're uh, very good at um, uh, advocating for themselves. I, I can speak from the perspective of, of an historian who can tell you that Irish people resisted and held out for sovereignty yes. for, depending on how you measure it, at least four or more centuries. Mm. And that's, that's a small estimate, four centuries. The peoples of India, uh, at least for centuries, yes, um, until they eventually succeeded. On the other hand, um, and this is probably a more provocative take on it. Oh, go ahead. It might be that the nation state itself, as a form of government, dwindles away before the Kurds can win one. Oh my! Uh, that might be a sad idea to the long-suffering Kurdish people. Um, but it, it might be that race nations, ethno-nations, are not the path forward for humankind. Um, now, my Kurdish friends would not be happy to hear that, no, sure. that sentiment because it, it's, it's been their goal for, um, for as long as there was an Ottoman em- Empire. Um, but it's something for us to think about, that it might be that the nation-state as a form yeah, of government yeah. is not long-lived, and maybe it's not... A, a great path forward for all of humankind. I tend to agree with you there that uh, nation state is only you know relatively recent in in human history, whereas a sense of tribe has been there a long, long time. I haven't asked, and I, I don't know if you know what uh, role, if any, the Russians play in all this. I, I have no clue. Do you? <laughs> the the I, I think, and I'm not going to be super informative about this, except to say that it's pretty clear that they're taking an opportunity to shoulder into that sphere. Um, And it might be that President Trump is quite happy to let them shoulder in. That's that's actually, I think, the most simple explanation of what, how things look on the ground. Interesting. Interesting. Let the... uh... Uh, we could talk about that all day, of course. Well, fast, fascinating discussion, I think. It, you know, we need to know what's really going on on the ground. I, mean, I think, you know, with the average American, you ask Kurdistan, what is Kurds? Who knows where Kurds are? But there are a lot of people. They're being slaughtered. I don't know if the slaughter is continuing. They claim the, the uh, uh, Turkish uh, military claim to have a ceasefire. I somehow doubt that. But they're going on and on, and I, I, I hope we don't have another uh, massacre, and uh, you know, wiping out of of the Kurdish people. But I don't know. Maybe the uh, the Turks are motivated to do so. They've been longing to get after them for a long, long time. Well, if people are interested in reading more of your uh, uh, writing, your uh, scholarly uh, review of of things, is there any kind of website you can point them to? Absolutely. I, I, I gather together my, my articles for a general readership um, Good. at my name, John Broich, J-O-H-N-B-R-O-I-C-H 
info. So I, I just I gather everything there and I list it there, and you'll find the the Kurdish piece there along with others that try to explain how we got into <laughs> got into this mess. How did we get here? Ah, yes, it's always good to know so we can figure out a way out. Thank you so much, and uh, I hope we can talk again in the future, John. My pleasure. I'll look forward to it. Thank you. And this is a song, a tribute to the Kurdish women warriors. This is some Kurdish music to the warriors who fought so valiantly. Thanks so much for listening. Digger, 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 digger,